I want to tell you the results of the survey we had for um, the catering um, that we did on the 14th of December. Uh, we asked you uh, what your willingness is around two choices, and the results um, happened that you are interested in the lesser costly of the two choices. So starting next week, you'll be paying $11 for a soup, a large soup bowl, or a large stew bowl. It won't get a choice. It'll be either soup or stew of the day, a bun, and a dessert. So that will start for seven weeks. And on February 22nd, which is the seventh week, we will once again ask you how you enjoy your meal. Okay? We really want to get this right for you. So it's a fair choice, and uh, we'd like to thank you for your input, and um, that's all we want to say about that for now. Now, I'd like to introduce Kevin Van Tegen. Kevin and I have known each other for quite a long time. I used to work in Parks Canada, and Kevin, of course, has worked in Parks Canada for a large part of his life. He shaped a part of my career as an interpreter and educator with Parks Canada in his prominent role as an advocate, as an interpreter, as a superintendent. He now, and now with his books and his monthly column in Alberta Views magazine, he helps me and readers across Canada connect with natural and cultural heritage issues and concerns. He's also a great Facebook uh, friend. Yay! He's here today to do just that for you. So please help me welcome Kevin Van Tegel. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. We raised our kids just upwind from here in Waterton, so it's sort of like a blowing home again. Um, I'm already breaking the rules. It's not working, eh? There you go. But lower. I have to figure out this computer quickly. There you go. It seems to have a mind of its own. So I'm here to talk about. Uh, I've been invited here to talk about do parks protect nature? And 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 it's it's. Uh, I've probably got a complicated answer. So God help us all. I hope that it gets coherent within the next half hour. Uh, this is really part of launching a book that I just uh, assembled a year ago called. Um, uh, our place, changing the nature of Alberta, and so I'm going to do a few readings from it, and that'll be the coherent part of the talk. So I'm not going to get to that question until the end, and if I forget to, then somebody's going to have to ask, uh, remind me during the question period. This is, uh, to those that may not recognize it, this is where Treaty 7 was signed on the Bow River downstream from Calgary. So in some ways, this is where it all started to go wrong. This is a place where we ended up with um, uh, bringing in a way of seeing the world that was not native to this world and then making that way of seeing the world dominate the decisions that, that uh, took effect over the next century and a half. I came to the prairie landscape in a different way. I, I, um, I came to, and, and of course, I, I had to throw this picture in because this is really what happened to Prairie Canada once we'd uh, occupied it thoroughly. We turned it upside down and turned it into um, a place for producing crops, but we lost a lot along the way. And um, yet we didn't lose all the potential and all the possibilities of getting it right. I came to, the, to the, my, my experience of the prairies really because of these guys, as probably some people in this room did, and 
grew up in the city of Calgary, and we used to head out east of the east of Calgary to my relatives' farms to hunt pheasants every fall. And that was that was our prairie thing. And the prairie that we visited was very different from the prairie that, the prairies that existed when Treaty Seven was signed. Obviously, that was in the 1960s. I think actually most of the people in this room do remember the 1960s. Quite often, I'll say, "Do you remember those?" And <laughs> 1960s. So I'm going to read a little bit from uh, from my book because it sort of goes to the central theme of the book, but it goes really to the bigger question about protecting nature. What the heck are we even talking about? And what would it look like if we even got it right? Is it picking everything up? <laughs> Cut the rattles there. My parents' reminiscences about the prairies of their youth had already given me a sense of how much Alberta's prairies had, cha had changed in barely two human lifetimes. I had seen many changes in the farmland east of Calgary during my own few decades. The arrival of deer, then woodpeckers, blue jays, foxes, even the occasional moose. But it was the university library with its with its uh, books and journals rich in historical and ecological information that fully opened my eyes to how much change those familiar everyday fields had known in the past century. The more I learned, the more I realized that the nature of my home place might be something quite different from what I could see around me. One fall in the 1970s, as my now aging father, and you know, I hate reading that line because he was, I think, about a year younger than I am right now. <laughs> One fall in the late 1970s as my surprisingly youthful father and I <laughs> came home from another day afield, we saw fields of stubble. Uh, wait a minute. My magic slide transition didn't happen. There you go. We saw fields of stubble burning north of the Trans-Canada Highway. Long lines of flame flickered orange in the, e in the fading evening, scrolling out across the contours of a sprawling barley field. I'd been studying about the role that wildfire and other natural disturbance processes had played in shaping the ecology of the primeval prairie, and suddenly, in the growing darkness when things grow strange, the eyes of my imagination saw past the familiar irrigation country back to the wild prairie of only a few decades ago. In my mind's eye, I saw an endless rolling mosaic of needle grass, blue grama, western wheatgrass, and a hundred other species of low-growing grasses, herbs, and shrubs stretching beneath, unbroken beneath the sky unmarred by jet trails. Great patches of that landscape were blackened where lightning and indigenous hunters had lit fires and let them run in the wind. Thousands of bison peppered the plains, grazing on succulent new grass that had sprouted from those earlier burns. The hissing prairie wind was full of their muttering rumble and the sweet pungent odor of dung. A pack of wolves sauntered along the edge of the herd, watching for weaknesses. Eagles, ravens, and magpies fed on the last remains of an old bull nearby. Endless lines of migrating waterfowl, geese, ducks, and, and cranes filled the sky overhead. The prairie echoed to their ga gabble. Far to the south, a line of gold marked the foli foliage of cottonwoods along the Bow River, where grizzly bears foraged among the ripened Saskatoons and choke cherries. The sudden glow of street lamps illuminating a concrete overpass jarred me back to the present. We are arriving home to Calgary, a city that had grown already to hold more people than lived in the entire province of Alberta when I was born. I think it was that abrupt return to reality that led me to see, for the first time, the province of my place is a strange place, the province of my birth is a strange place, where people view landscape change as normal rather than strange and upsetting, where many native plants and animals fade towards oblivion while introduced weeds and exotic species thrive, a province whose landscapes are the product no longer of place, 
but of engineering and error. What has happened to this place we call home? How can we know it better? What part of our identity derives from its true nature? Or are we more at one with the weeds? Oops. Oh, this is maddening. There we go. So I guess that sort of sets the, uh, sets the central question around what are we talking about when we're protecting nature? Do we even know what nature is? And, and is it too late? Have we already changed too much? And the answer to is it too late is in this slide. It is far from too late. We live in one of the most beautiful, ecologically diverse and uh, special places in the planet. And like local people everywhere, we think the neat places are everywhere else. But the neat places are right here, and we still have them. But we aren't getting it right. We aren't automatically going to get it right. And parks have a role in that. And I think that's where I'm hoping to come to eventually here. But they aren't the only part. They aren't the only way in which we protect, protect nature. And in fact, I think they are, are not even necessarily the most important way in which we protect nature. So this slide's going to sit here for a while. But I'm going to talk a little bit uh, extraneously, and extra, ex extraneously and also with a couple of readings here about this whole idea of parks. I spent my entire life working in the national parks, first as a bio biologist working for the Canadian Wildlife Service and then in various capacities with Parks Canada. And when I, was, uh, when I retired from my last job in 2011, I went for a big, long hike. It was like a multi-day hike through the backcountry of Banff. And uh, it, it turned into an article uh, that was published in Alberta Views, and it ended up in my book. I'm going to read a little segment from that. But it was really one of those uh, poignant moments that we all have at some stage as we approach the end of our time on the planet of asking ourselves, so was my time here worthwhile? Or was I just sort of spinning wheels? And so it was really a, a chance to reflect on this national park thing on the, and, and do parks protect nature? Have they done a good job? Are we any better, place better than we were 30 years ago when my career had started? And I came to the conclusion by the end of my hike that yes and no. We've got one piece really well. It's, we, we really achieved one thing, I think, uh, to a level of almost excellence over the course of my lifetime. I can only take credit for little tiny snippets of it, but I feel good about being part of that enterprise. And we have totally dropped the ball on, unfortunately, what is mu much more important. And so I'm going to see if I can find that reading for you here. I think the, f the first thought, though, before I go into that is, what is the point of having national parks? Why would we have national parks, something which expresses Canada, which is something, a, a product of the government of Canada, which is put in place by the people of Canada and funded by the people of Canada to do things that are important to the people of Canada. Why, what, what's with parks? And at, at, at another scale, at a provincial scale, why do we have provincial parks? What's, what's the point of that? Isn't it more important to educate kids? Isn't it more important to keep the streets safe? Like, why do we have this national institution? And I would say that, that we have these institutions because they express that part of our, ourselves that is defined by the places where we live. We aren't just any people anywhere. We are Canadians. We're not just any Canadians. We are Albertans. And we have places to remind us of that. So they have a conservation rule. They protect those pieces of landscape that represent the diversity of our home places. But they have a role that's much, more big, much bigger than that. They have a people-making role. They're, they're a big part of helping us define ourselves as unique people on this planet, of uh, this piece of the planet. And if they do that job well, they change us. And if they change us, then there's hope for nature. Because it's not parks that protect nature, it's people that protect nature. Or people that damage nature. 
It really depends on how those people see themselves and what they've learned and how they connect. And that, to me, is the piece that Parks has sort of dropped the ball on, which is why I was really honored to be introduced by Heather, because it's a piece that I, she and I spent a lot of time, our careers working on and uh, had the rug pulled out from us more than once on it. I have to find the right piece of paper here. So uh, again, I'm not, not going to quite get to the reading until I set some more context. I'm sorry, you're going to have to you're going to have to buy the book. So are you going to get? A <laughs> <laughs> Oops, did I say that? Canadian authors have to hustle constantly. Um, I, I, when I went through the park, I discovered a bunch of things that had changed, most of them for the better, because we'd brought back prescribed fire, because wolves were now living in Banff, and they hadn't been living there when I started my career, and they changed everything in terms of the, where the elk were, and where the sheep were, and what the vegetation looked like because of where those ungulates were. And a lot of the things I saw looked a lot better than they had 30 years earlier. Some of the things looked a lot worse. Uh, timberline was vanishing. Uh, the, all, the, all those little beautiful flower meadows at Timberline are filling in with trees because the forests are growing higher on the mountainside because the climate's getting milder and the trees can grow higher. And, uh, and it was very, very quiet. There was hardly any bird song. That was, that was mind-blowing to me. It was, actually, it was actually sobering. I was thinking, where are the birds? Um, so there, some things had changed, but most of the things that had changed uh, to the park as a result of things happening outside the park. You know, it's not really in the park that we drive climate change, maybe on the jet on the way there. It, it's not in the park where all those birds die, but when the, parks, when the birds come back to the parks, it's only as many birds are available, right? So some things were better because of how the park was managed. Some things were worse because of how we're living in the world. And yet the park was absolutely full of visitors because it was the July long weekend. National parks, provincial parks, exist at the will of Canadians. They give expression to our collective sense that nature matters, that our heritage gives us meaning, that some places are so special that they should be passed on like family heirlooms to those who come after us. But they also exist at the mercy of Canadians. During my 35 years working in Western Canada's national parks, the number of visitors to those parks more than doubled. Some environmental groups argue that's a bad thing. Some tourism groups think it's great. It could be either. It all depends on what new insights, understanding, and motivations those visitors take home with them. Parks Canada's core mandate says that visitors are to be educated. And if parks are threatened with impairment, then Parks Canada is mandated to avert, avert it. Those two responsibilities are flip sides of the same coin because the only hope for wise decisions about land use, energy consumption, and climate policy is an educated, ecologically literate Canadian population. There's a break here. It is Canada Day 2011 when I finally arrive at the Trans-Canada Highway near Lake Louise. Countless people are streaming through the scenery, many on their way to or from celebrations of this place we call Canada, a place whose nature we honour and purport to protect in places called national parks. None, I, expect, I suspect, are aware of the silence in the woods, the shrinking meadows and the missing caribou. Most will go home feeling good about their national park. Far too few, I, I, I fear, will go home transformed or enlightened about the nature of their Canada, its ecosystems, its climate, and their choices as citizens. It appears that for the most part, Parks Canada got ecosystem management right by the end of its first century. 
The critical next challenge is ecological literacy. Our parks won't last their next century without it. We might not either. So I guess that's, that's where, I, where I come to with the question about do parks protect nature. Um, yeah, sort of. A few little postage stamps are protected from development. But we invite visitors there, and if we don't change the way in which those visitors connect with land and see themselves as expressions of that land, and that land as expressions of their choices, there's not much hope for, any, for nature anywhere, including in the parks, because an, a, a, a disconnected citizenry makes disconnected decisions, and we see them everywhere. So I, I would argue parks, can, uh, parks, national parks, provincial parks, municipal parks, parks have got a radical mandate that they are ignoring. And their manda radical mandate is to not just be places that are protected, but allow people to understand that, that those places define who we are. We are where we are. There, there are places of conversion in education. There are places that turn us more into who we could be than who we were when we arrived. And if they aren't doing that, they're falling well short of what their actual social mission is and why it's worthwhile investing societies to invest in actually having these places. And the alternatives are, are kind of sad and ugly. I, I, I don't think I've got enough time here for um, covering everything that this talk covers. Darn it, you might have to buy a book. Um, does anybody recognize the place in the top right, left-hand corner of this picture? Good luck with that. You have to have been to that specific pool. This is called the Little Smoky Drainage. Little Smoky River, it's, it's north of Hinton and Edson sort of central, west central Alberta, just maybe on the north tilt of that. I found this place in 1980, would have been about 88. It was pristine. There was one major cut line that made it almost to the edge of the river, and the rest of that upper watershed was untouched. And I found it, uh, I, I, I can't tell you the whole story because I, I know I've got a half-hour limit, and I usually give myself all sorts of room to go over limits, and I won't do it here. Um, but I found it because a, a, a good friend of mine, a fishery biologist, invited me to help him with some field work. And when he told me that it involved dry fly fishing for Arctic grayling and that we were going to be putting little markers in the backs of them, I thought, well, I could probably handle that. <laughs> and it was the most spectacular fishing I've ever had in my life. We caught, like, I, I, it must have been about 150 fish in about six hours. Uh, it, it, just, it, it was magic. And, and, the, and the place was just tracked up with otter tracks and wolf tracks and caribou tracks and moose tracks. It was, and so as a result of that, there was a movement to get this place protected as a park. It was, you know, Alberta didn't have a boreal wilderness park. This was an intact boreal wilderness. Let's do it. Instead, it was turned over to the logging industry. It, uh, it, was, it was licensed out for, uh, for uh, oil and gas exploration. It is today classified as, I believe, 95% physically disturbed, that watershed. That happened in our lifetime. That happened in my kid's lifetime. It wasn't even half of my lifetime. And we did that because it made sense to us. It, we did that because we don't see ourselves as a boreal people. We don't see boreal Canada as expressing who we are. It's simply a way, it's simply a place where, that produces resources to, uh, that will en enable us to change this place even further from what it started out, at, started out as. So, so there's something missing there. And, and I think one of the things that was missing, obviously, was the lack of a protected park. Another one was a lack of a connected people. And this, you know, and yet at the time that I did that article, I was working in Jasper National Park, which is not that far from the Little Smoky and is in many ways connected to that boreal ecosystem. And it gets thousands of visitors from Alberta every year, but nobody was aware of the Little Smoky. Nobody was aware of the fact that we were losing our boreal 
wildernesses, and nobody paid attention, and we lost it. So this is, a, I, I'm not going to uh, read from this chapter. Um, I, I've, got, I've, I've got about four different things I wrote about the Little Smoky over the years, starting with this profoundly optimistic, hopelessly naive thing I wrote in the 1980s to a cynical, bitter one that I wrote about three years ago <laughs> based on reality. But it, it, it's a sort of a microcosm of how a society destroys its identity by destroying the places that give it its identity if that society is unconscious of who and where they are. We've got a lot of things wrong here. But, you know, um, nature's forgiving, uh, nature's resilient, nature will come back, but that means that we do, it does require that we find a way of seeing nature differently so that we can change our course and give it the chance to give, it, uh, give, it, give us our identity back. So I'm gonna move to a good news story. Um, the big picture, with the elk in it. You see those elk? Was taken from beside that little guy with the BB gun. And he was really mad at his sisters that are about in the bottom corner because they were being noisy. They were, they were doing uh, video blogs of their hike in their little cell phones. And he was going to get his first elk. And they scared them away. They were about a mile away. But this kid was really keen about it. So this is one piece of what we need to do about connecting people with nature is get these kids out with their imaginations in these places and help these places become how these kids come to know themselves. That was a great day out there. This was the whaleback area. Do you, uh, many people here familiar with the whaleback? Oh, I would think. Yeah, this is part of our little legacy down in this part of the province. The whaleback is an example of getting it right. And, and how did we get it right there? Well, for one thing, we established parks. So do parks protect nature? Certainly in the whaleback, parks are still protecting nature. In fact, and as I point out again in my essay, um, about the whaleback. This was the invention of a new kind of protected area that's unique to Alberta called a wildland, uh, sorry, a wildland park, which is a brilliant concept. Basically, it turns off roads and industrial development wheels and leaves turned on everything that we've always done there. So it's still got cattle grazing, it's still got hunting, it's still got fishing. It doesn't alienate any of the people whose activities are consistent with sustaining it, but it stops that juggernaut of change that just trashed places like the Little Smoky from changing it away from what it I would argue, is meant to be. And so we have this incredible resource here that is a product of the Ralph Klein era when a lot of conservation things weren't happening, but that government invented the wildland park and gave it to us, and it remains a place where you can take kids out to discover who they are in the places that, that, that give them their unique character as opposed to kids somewhere else in the world. And, because it, and, and the reason it happened was because people cared, people were connected. The people in southwestern Alberta the ranching community, uh, a lot of the recreational community down here, they do identify themselves around their place. They don't see the boreal, they don't see this area the way that we look at the boreal as just a, a place that we suck resources out of. They see it as a place that we live in. And so when it's threatened, they will mobilize to protect it. And this is what you get when you get a society that identifies itself with its places. And one of the ways you get those, the, that kind of a society is through having parks for them to visit and experience and learn from. And I would argue that maybe, uh, to some extent, maybe whaleback owes a lot to Waterton. I don't know that. It certainly owes a lot to ranching and the fact that it allows, uh, you know, ranching provides a way to make a living in a landscape without changing it, but, but without being able to ignore it for five seconds so that it eventually does become woven into every little piece of your fabric. Fundamentally, it comes down to storytelling. And I think that's why I write my books, and that's why I'm hustling them all the time, is that... A society is really nothing more than a bundle of conversations. 
It's what you talk about, it's what you think, sing about, it's what you dream about. All those conversations in which we exchange ideas and exchange perspectives collectively define our culture. And my argument is that Alberta has been a little bit complacent about its culture. We don't bother with those conversations, and when we do have those conversations, we let somebody else start it, and we let them create the language, and that we let them tell us our story as if they know it. We need to know our story, and then we need to make sure our story is reflected in the landscapes we live in. And just as a quick example, there's this little guy. Now, some of you may or may not recognize him. He's about the size of a piece of rice, and he loves to eat pine trees, the mountain pine beetle. So the story we all know is that mountain pine beetles are a disaster for Alberta because we've been told that. And that one of the great Alberta initiatives is to stop those darn pine beetles and make sure they don't get out of BC. And so we've been involved in that enterprise for about 15 years now, well, more than 15 years. Uh, repeated waves of pine beetles sweeping into our pine forests and repeated panic attacks as, as that happens, and we set out to save the forests. That story is a phony story. That's a story that was started by the forest industry. And the forest industry does have a lot at stake here because these pine beetles are competing with them for their, for their fiber resources. But if you think about the nature of these forests, if you actually have people that spend time in these forests and look at them and observe them, critically thinking about how these forests work, pine beetles are the best thing that's ever happened to them. Because in a time of changing climate, when these trees have been protected from fire for the last century and are now all crowded together, sucking water out of, out of, out of, out of, out of soil that doesn't get as much water as it did 50 years ago, the pine beetles are rescuers because they're going in there and they're going into these forests, killing the most vulnerable, vulnerable trees, the ones that are least able to defend themselves because they're drought-stressed, failing to kill the ones that are able to defend themselves, so genetically selecting the most drought-resistant pines, which we will need in our new century, and in the meantime, killing a whole lot of pines, which releases all the other trees that live there, the, the, the subalpine fir, the white spruce, the Douglas fir, and allowing them to grow up into the openings, creating much more diverse forests. Mountain pine beetles are Mother Nature's way of adapting our forests to a changing climate, and in doing it, and 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 doing it in a way which produces all sorts of ecological benefits. Like there are so many things that move into a pine beetle-riddled forest because it's full of food, not just the beetles, but the carpenter ants and and all the stuff that's growing in the openings be between the trees. From any ecological perspective on mountain pine beetles says this is how we are going to see the evolution of the Alberta's forests of the future. But what do we do? We go to war with them and we think that's an Albertan thing to do because somebody told us our story about pine beetles. But they had a vested interest. We have a vested interest. Our interest is to make sure that this e these ecosystems work, are diver diverse, thriving, producing water for our streams and rivers and mountain pine beetles are helping with all of that. But we aren't telling that story because we've left others to tell us what our story is, and we become the victims of that. So this ecological literacy bit is, is pretty critical, I think. Um, it is a critical part of national, par national parks and provincial parks, without which they are not really delivering what they need to deliver to be worth, worthy of our investment. But they're also critical for each one of us. We need to really be listening to the stories that are told to us be paying attention to the conversations we're being pulled into or, or that we're creating and asking ourselves, are these the conversations that create a culture of belonging and a culture of sustaining that, that protect nature and, and doing so protect us? And if not, why not? It's our responsibility to have the right conversations. 
And that's what basically I, I, I try to contribute through my work, is I, as I at least try and start some different conversations. And one reason why I think that no book should ever be allowed to be homeless, at least none I wrote, because, because in those homes there's conversations that need to happen. I'm going to give you one last little reading, because I think I'm out of time. Oh, I'm doing good. Okay. <coughs> I wrote a rather complex essay a number of years ago. This is a collection of essays from multiple years. That's why they work together as a bundle. And um, this was one that was sort of going to the idea, idea of identifying yourself through where you are. And uh, I can't read you the whole thing. And so in, in the piece I read you, you're going to find some references to things that don't completely make sense, but they're in the essay. And I won't say what obviously I should say next. <laughs> this comes from the shocking realization I, uh, my wife and I had when we moved briefly back to um, the Calgary area. We knew we couldn't move back to the Calgary we'd grown up in because it had been, been pretty much completely built over. So we thought, well, we'll move to somewhere Calgary-ish. We'll move to Okotoks. And we, we bought a place in Okotoks. Well, little did we know we were buying into a bedroom community. And the piece of Okotoks we were moving into hadn't even existed 10 years earlier. And while we lived in that little piece of Okotoks, it had, been completely, it had completely replaced farm fields and, and rough fescue and meadow larks. Another square mile of land was being torn up across our back fence for another subdivision. And we suddenly realized what we were part of. And, and, that, and that there was a strangeness to this fact that we all cons uh, thought we were enjoying small town life while we were busy undoing everything that made that a small town and being Albertans while we were busy erasing everything that made the place Alberta. Fortunately, I got another job. We moved again, coming home to Waterton. Far from the scrapers, bulldozers, and landscaping companies, but they are not far behind. That dust cloud of haste and unconcern will continue to arise from the near horizon until we Western Canadians succeed in redefining home and establishing a more reflective and honorable relationship with the places of which grant fate grants us the chance to be a part. Like the vandals in my vision, those scraper operators, cat skinners, and contractors wear our visages. Our eyes stare blankly from those faces, failing to focus as they sweep the living landscape. Interest flickers only when they see familiar things, bank machines, televisions, asphalt, cell phone, cell phone screens, other products of artifice and desire. What we recognize depends upon what we can see. What we can see depends upon how our senses have been trained, a big part of who we are. Who we are depends usually on the kind of home we grew up in. And I would argue going to a park should be going home. I still return to my family home at Christmas and Thanksgiving. I visit my mother in the house that has been a part of my life since the age of four. There's a crucifix in the dining room wall. I remember holy cards tucked behind it after my first communion, communion and palm leaves drawing behind it each spring. I know which stairs squeak, what the furnace sounds like late at night, which walls are patched, and why. Everything about that house is familiar, rich with association, memory, and significance. The faces around the table are people I know and love. We've laughed together, suffered together, Learn to give each other space and to take pleasure in the times when we, when we reunite. That house and those people are my home. They matter deeply to me. I could not stand to be cut off from them. 
I could never bring myself to, to do harm to any of them. They are all inextricably bound up in how I have come to know myself. So too, I now know, are the Athabasca River Valley, the Eskers and Cames south of Radium, the wind-whipped aspen forests of Waterton, and the wild places and living landscapes I've come to know, however imperfectly, and grown to love through years of exploration, contemplation, and growing concern about their well-being. It is, is that my signal? Well, that's good, because I've got one paragraph left. It is time for us to come home. It is past time. It is time to rediscover the living landscapes of the wounded west and recognize them as the home places that make us who we are, no less than our families, the houses in which we live, and the ways in which we earn our livings. It is time to seek our own Esker connections, moments of epiphany that transfigure our surroundings and transform us. No matter how hard we race toward the, the horizon, it recedes ahead of us. Perhaps no, home is not beyond the horizon after all. Coming home might be a simple matter of learning to see more clearly where we are already, determining to treasure it, and choosing to stay. So, going back to the central question, do parks protect nature? They start the job, but it's people that finish the job. And that means that, first of all, parks have to help us become more the kinds of people that a place like this deserves. And then once we've become those people, things like the whale back, things like the Waterton Front Project for the Nature Conservancy of Canada, things like cows and fish, they all become possible because we have become that kind of people. Protecting nature is not a simple matter of putting a boundary around a piece of land and saying that piece of land is safe, everything else can go. It's a matter of turning us into people that will sustain nature everywhere it is and in so doing, make ourselves and our lives infinitely richer. Uh, parks can protect nature, parks should protect nature, but ultimately the job comes down to the people who, who, whose parks those are, and that's all of us. So thanks very much for inviting me, and hopefully there's some food for thought there.